DW, World in Progress. Welcome to the show. I'm Kathleen Schuster. Coming up, the island of Grenada is grappling with the possibility of receiving reparations for the UK's role in slavery. The people who were actually involved are dead and gone. But um, if they want to contribute in any way to education, nation building, what have you, I would welcome that. And then, why a group of women is testing the boundaries of comedy in Pakistan. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for the Queen's Revolution. Things are going to get uncomfortable here, so listen up. You're listening to World in Progress. I'm your host, Kathleen Schuster. We're devoting the first half of this week's show to the topic of reparations and how both the descendants of slaves and the descendants of the slave owners are grappling with this difficult question. We begin in the Caribbean nation of Grenada, where slavery played an important role in the country's colonial history, and now its prime minister is calling on the United Kingdom for reparations payments. In the meantime, some of the UK's major institutions, like the Bank of England, Oxford University, and the Church of England, are already taking steps to address their role in the transatlantic slave trade. And so are some private citizens. Reporter Daniel Zilberstein Lewandowski has more. To the people of Grenada, we, the undersigned, write to apologize for the actions of our ancestors in holding your ancestors in slavery. On estates which include- in early 2023, a family called the Trevelyans apologized in a public ceremony for their ancestors' role as slaveholders on the island of Grenada. The English aristocrats owned over 1,000 enslaved African people on numerous sugarcane plantations. I wanted to know what the people of Grenada make of this apology and the Trevelyans' promise to pay £100,000 in reparations. I started by asking Joseph Antoine. Joseph is a 70-year-old market trader who sells herbal and vegetable plants on the market of Grenada's capital cities and Georges. But where I met Joseph, there was something else. I'm here at St. George's Market, opposite the plaque that commemorates the sale of the African ancestors. It says here, in memory of our African ancestors who were sold here and enslaved. We will always remember Emancipation Day, August 1838. And opposite sit Joseph, who sells some plants. Joseph, you're sitting opposite this plaque. It remembers your ancestors, probably, and everybody's ancestors. I asked you about this lady and the family who come here to pay reparation. And you, you told me something about what you think about her. Well, I thought it was a good gesture. And she also said... It's, 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 it's a start, and I hope the others behind will watch it and continue doing what she has done, which I think is a good saying as well. Why is it important, reparation? Because what our ancestors was occupied on the plantation without owning anything, without owning anything, and it creates an impact on the generation to come. So it leaves us in poverty up to this time. 
and I think the reparations should be paid. Joseph told me he wished any reparations to be invested in things like healthcare, infrastructure and schools, but the money shouldn't go directly to politicians. At least 130,000 people were enslaved on the island of Grenada between the 17th and the 19th century. The topic of reparation raises a range of opinions here on this island where roughly four out of five people are descendants of the formerly enslaved. The people who were actually involved are dead and gone. And who are alive are just ancestors who maybe knew nothing of what took place. But um, if they want to contribute in any way to education, nation building, what have you, I would welcome that. If lazy people come back and apologize, I think it's a good thing. Well, tell England, give me $2 billion and forget everything. That's what I you. Get $2 billion US and forget everything. And I will, I will take care of the country. We are wasting too much time on this slave thing. As, because we're still, waiting, you see, in my, we're still waiting on the English and the European to give us something. And as long as they're giving us the reply, we, they are in control because when they give us the cell, they us what to do. The voices of Sheena Gill, Connor Ruperts, Doyle Lucen, and Dayton Hayes. The Trevelyan's family story came to light when family members, amongst them Laura Trevelyan, a BBC reporter, began digging into their family's past. For Britain to abolish slavery in 1833, the agreement by the state to compensate slave owners for the loss of their investments was in the end the crucial factor to win over the strong lobby against the abolition. When the time for claims came, some 46,000 persons were awarded compensation to the total sum of 20 million pounds or 20 billion euros in today's money. It was the biggest state-funded scheme up until the financial crash in 2008. But the formerly enslaved received nothing. Meanwhile, the Trevelyans were given what would amount to nearly three million pounds in today's money. While some in the wider Trevelyan family wanted to act, others were more hesitant. I met Laura's 80-year-old uncle in the garden of a cafe on Goodwood Estate in South England, owned by another English aristocrat whose ancestors, you guessed it, also once owned enslaved Africans. Tom Trevelyan says he thought he owned Grenadians nothing, and he didn't do anything to anyone, and because it happened a long time ago. It didn't even make me uneasy that I was doing nothing. <laughs> Why do you think you reacted like that? It, did, it felt it disconnected. It, you. It was just well, I saw, I saw no connection. Yeah. Isn't that a common human reaction when to defend your position? I didn't want to be attacked. I didn't want to pay anything. Well, just, just a nebulous feeling that... I didn't, I, didn't want, I didn't want to know. And while Tom understood calls for reparations in the US in the wake of the Black Lives Matter movement, he wasn't convinced to act until he saw his niece's documentary about their family's history. The Trevelyans became the first British family to apologize. Ali Gill, the head of the Grenadian Reparations Committee, told me from his small office overlooking the harbour of St. George's that to him it was a watershed moment. 
When we speak of reparations, we, we are saying that the former European power should repair the harm that was caused. And that harm that was caused for education, healthcare, genocide of the first peoples. And also, let's not forget the wanton massacre of Africans. How many, how many, how much thousands that have, would have died throughout the Middle Passage and those that would have died on the plantations. Remember, the plantation owners um, thought it was cheaper to replace slaves than to take care of ill slaves and so on, so that they walked them to death, basically. So the Laura Travillian uh, initiative here in Grenada has certainly opened up the doors. It, 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 it has created, for one, the discussion. Whether they agree with reparations or not, at least it's been discussed. At least it's been talked about. But he says reparations must not be mistaken for aid as they address crimes and harm done whilst aid would be within the gift of any person or country. Independent of the ifs and buts in the Caribbean and the United Kingdom, the initiative of the Trevelyans has now led to about 60 individuals or representatives of families coming forward. They call themselves the heirs of slavery. On their list, besides Laura and Tom Trevelyan, one of the other co-founders is the Scottish journalist Alex Renton, who discovered just a few years ago that his ancestors, the Scottish Fergusons, had also invested in enslaved Africans in the Caribbean. It's about reconciliation and peace and love between nations and uh, learning to talk better and being honest about the past, which, which my people like me have not been. This is Daniel Silverstein Lewandowski. Well, when it comes to figuring out how large reparation payments should be, my next guest has had some practice. Rohan Janikaraman is one of the authors behind a recent report that calculated the damages caused by the transatlantic slave trade, which took place from the 1500s to the 1800s. The report delves into the question of how to put a number to what the more than 19 million slaves and their descendants were deprived of across the Americas and the Caribbean. Lost wages in the U.S. alone could be worth more than $15 trillion, according to this calculation. In Brazil, nearly $13 trillion. And then there's the question of how to calculate money owed for mental anguish, among other things. I spoke with Rohan Janikaraman earlier this week. Rohan Janikaraman, thanks for joining us on World in Progress. Thank you. So you and the other authors of this report tried to calculate how much the transatlantic slave trade would cost in terms of reparations. How much would it come to, according to the figures that you came up with? So the total cost, based on the method we use, is anywhere between $100 trillion and $131 trillion U.S. dollars. So that's like four to five times the amount of the U.S. GDP. Yeah, about five times the amount of the U.S. GDP. Just one example. How did you calculate how much somebody would be owed based on what a slave would have been paid had they been a normal laborer in today's terms? Yeah, so we calculate their total foregone earnings and we decompose that into two parts. 
one being the uncompensated labor during their lifetime, and then another being the potential earnings lost due to reduced life expectancy. And we calculate the uncompensated labor during their lifetime by the estimated slave life expectancy times the annual wages they would have earned if they were a free laborer. And then we look at the potential earnings lost due to reduced life expectancy by looking at the life expectancy differential between free and slave peoples, and then multiplying it by the annual wages that we would expect them to receive. So what would somebody have been paid in today's terms based on that calculation? Yeah, so in 1800, the median free laborer in the U.S. earned about 73 cents in nominal terms. And in today's terms, that would come out to be about 17 or $18 per day. A lot of times when people first hear reparations, they think it's just talking about how much a slave would have earned if they had been a, a normal laborer. But in this study, you're talking about putting a number to mental suffering and anguish and loss of liberty. How do you even begin to do that? What do you refer to? So we referred to uh, previous court cases and damages awards. And we had to really do a pretty extensive literature review and then come up with a suitable number that was like well defendable. But it was basically a literature review on like psychological harms, such as like torture and stuff like that. Well, one thing that I thought was really interesting was you, for example, cite how much the U.S. federal government would pay somebody today if they had been wrongfully incarcerated. And it's, if I have this correct, it would be over $50,000. And if it was somebody who was on death row, it would be even more money. So could you tell us about how you found other examples like that and, and how you came up with using it as a legitimate reference? So we had to do an extensive study on what the damage awards would be for someone who was sexually abused, for someone who was raped. And based on like a literature review and like several court cases, we established sort of a one-time number like for damages that would occur over the course of a year and extend those yearly damages to all the person years that were suffered under chattel slavery. When you consider the estimations that your study has come up with, would you consider them conservative or are they considered quite high compared to other studies? Uh, we would consider the estimations in our study to be quite conservative. So that, that $131 trillion, what we do is we come up with a nominal damages figure and then gross it up using an interest rate. And the interest rate that we use is 2.5%. And that can be decomposed into a 1.5% interest rate, which accounts for inflation, and a 1% real rate. And that's 1% real rate is actually much lower than most academic literature. Academic literature sort of suggests a real interest rate of a 1.5%. And a half percent makes a huge difference in these calculations. So we think our interest rate that we're using for our calculations is quite conservative. Was this study not able to look at something that you hope future researchers or maybe even your group can pick back up and uh, take a closer look at? Yeah, I think we need to do a better job of looking at the post-enslavement harms. So we in our study sort of saw slavery as having effects while it was in place and then effects after that. Uh, I think, however, when we looked at the post-enslavement harms, we primarily looked at the wealth gap between Black and white residents of various countries but that's not a sum total of the disparities that occur. So I think 
hopefully future studies we would hope would look more into sort of the post-enslavement harms and maybe differences in like consumption levels and quality of life indicators that we weren't able to get into. Rohan Janakaraman, thanks for taking the time to talk with us. Thank you. Rohan Janikaraman is a senior research analyst for the Brattle Group and spoke to World in Progress from Washington, D.C. He's one of the authors of the report, Quantification of Reparations for Transatlantic Chattel Slavery, which was released this summer. You're listening to World in Progress with me, Kathleen Schuster. Time for a quick music break. Stay tuned. You're listening to World in Progress with me, Kathleen Schuster. Turning now to Asia. In Pakistan, comedy, like in many countries, is traditionally a male-dominated space. One group of women is trying to change that by testing the boundaries of what they can get away with in the comedy clubs. They say women have a place in comedy, and so do some of the most controversial topics that affect their lives. Vanessa Yorka has this report. It's presented by Anka Raspa. The Khawatoons are rehearsing for a performance tomorrow. They're an all-female comedy troupe, which is new for Pakistan. First, the seven women open their mouths as widely as possible to get their facial muscles going. Then they start practicing their lines. They're excited for their all-female show tomorrow. One of the group members is Amtul Bawija. When she started doing comedy, mixed groups were the only option. First comedy troupe that I joined, it was four guys and I was the only girl. And they would crack all these like uh, jokes about sex and very like naughty, dirty jokes. And whenever we would do a show or performances or even rehearsals, I would always get to play a mom or a daughter or a sister or a wife. Like, automatically, the men would always end up taking the funnier characters or the more unique, different characters. They would always be like, yeah, I'll play a mechanic. I'll be a dirty, creepy film director. Sleazy. I I can play a sleazy man. It's a character. I can, but for a woman, you'll be like, oh, can I, can I sit like this? Can I act like a sleazy man? People won't uh, perceive me weirdly that what is she doing? That's changed. With the Khawatoons group, all the roles are being played by women. And they're not holding back. Amtul no longer hesitates when it comes to playing male characters. Right now, she's portraying a sexist colleague at work. She rolls her eyes and uses large hand gestures while saying, Oh, these women, when they come to work, they don't even work. They come to gossip and have tea and biscuits. That's all they do. There's also Zoom meetings, another performer on stage says. The name Khawatoons is a combination of the Urdu term for lady, khatoon, and the word cartoons. Most members of the troupe have full-time jobs. They rehearse in the evenings. In Pakistan, an all-female comedy troupe is something unusual and unique, but the Khawatoons have found an audience. 
they get booked for public events and by private clients. Right now, they're preparing to perform at a company event. They want to be visible as female actors, explains one of the group's members. I think a very important uh, aspect of being a woman in comedy is being one, you know, because there is a common notion that women are not funny. Women are not funny because women are not given chances. You know, they're not given a chance to perform on stage. Pakistan is a country with over 230 million inhabitants, many of whom live in poverty. Only half the women in the country can read and write. Just 22% are part of the workforce. Women are confined to traditional roles, dictated by conservative Muslim culture, Amtul explains. It's also the way our society is. It's also the in-laws and the family that also comes into play. So I think it's not just the husband alone. It's the entire culture because... Um, automatically it's assumed that, okay, the woman is here and she's going to take care of the house and she's going to cook and she's going to clean. You know, so these are, this is what they expect of a married woman. Antul's marriage is different. She met her husband, Fahad Tariq, at school. They worked together, got engaged and married and founded a film company. Together with a full-time team, they now produce creative features and commercial films. They both work in front of and behind the camera. Now let's add the symphony of flavors, trending music. Good, that's it. Just make sure it shows cringe. But a woman and a man working together as an equal team isn't the norm in Pakistan. Fahad knows that as well. While sitting across from his wife after the commercial shoot they just wrapped up, he asks, Do you think that if we weren't married, do you think we would be able to still work together? No. We would have walked away way earlier because I'd be like, I don't owe this guy shit. Why should I stick around? He's so opinionated and so stubborn. And you would also be like, yeah, she's a crazy lady. But yeah, a lot of people like wonder, how do we make it work? We established the fact that both of us need our own thing also because I, I think it's very important, like which we also discussed, that it's very important to be your own person as an individual. Mm. And especially I knew that that's a very important thing for me. Like I need to be my own person and I need to have my own things happening. Something that's weirdly controversial for a lot of males in our society is that Amtul handles the finances. Mm. And that's like, a, oh, your wife handles the finances. And I'm like... What's, what's the big deal? I find it so annoying that people have what well, I don't know, trust issues. I don't know what it is that why can't a woman like handle the finances of a company? Why can't she be empowered into making these decisions? Like, why is it important for the man to write the check and make the payments? Amtul doesn't allow herself to be stereotyped. She voices her values online too, including on Instagram. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for the Queen's Revolution. Things are going to get uncomfortable here, so listen up. Antul represents a new image of women in Pakistan, whether on social media or on stage. Like here at the Women of the World Festival. It's a two-day event in Karachi, where women, girls and non-binary people are given a platform. Amtul is hosting the show. She walks around the stage, addressing teenagers and young women in the audience. A lot of times body dysmorphia, a lot of these things, you know, they stem from these 
societal norms and the gender stereotypes and the pressure to be a certain way, pressure to be that way. Young women especially feel that Amtul's content speaks to them. After the show, several of her female fans approach her to take a selfie. Thank you guys. Thank you. I've been following her on Instagram for years. For, <laughs> like she's one of my favorite. Like she's one of the only influencers I follow. I try not not to follow a lot of them, but she's one of the only ones because she's so positive and you know like self love. And I think when you follow her, it's, it just yeah. makes you feel good about yourself. And she's not afraid to be stupid, and that yeah. and then stupid funny is so fun to watch. Even though she also receives many negative comments. Amzal says she has no problem being critical of societal norms online. Faisa Salim is more careful. As founder and manager of the Khawatoon's comedy troupe, she's responsible for its members and their safety. We don't talk about religion and politics. We don't talk about things that we think will uh, offend the masses. We don't post our improv comedy on social media. We won't find uh, much of an online presence. with the khawatoons because we scared of what will happen if the content gets out and also because some people have conservative families and their families are not okay with the girls being on stage in front of like a mixed audience or their girls saying certain things so some troop members still have not told their 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 families that they're part of the troop so i think that explains a lot about the what we work around <laughs> amtul knows firsthand that as a female pakistani comedian Winning your family over isn't easy. Her father was supportive from the start, but her mother needed time to accept the idea. Even when I joined the Khawatoons, I would be so nervous to invite my mother to one of my comedy shows because I didn't want to be judged by her and I was like, "Oh my god, what would she think of me?" And I think now I'm old enough also to be more confident. but also i think my mom has also become way more open minded because a lot of her friends also follow me now and see my content so i think when my mom gets this positive feedback from her friends around her she also kind of feels proud now it's the day of the show and the khawatoons are warming up the seven actors are standing behind each other in a long line giving each other a little back rub to ease the tension The company they are performing for has asked them to use humor to explore the serious topic of sexism in the workplace and how to avoid it. And of course, Amtul plays a man. Madam, madam, dekhe aap mujhe mansplaining karna mere pe ilzam lagati rehti hai. Her character leans over to his female colleague, played by another actor, points a finger at her and says, "Madam, you're always blaming me for mansplaining. I wasn't. I was just trying to help you." You didn't let me talk. You even stole my idea," replies her colleague. Madam, idea? And Antul's character responds, "We both had the same idea. I just had it ten seconds later." Even our boss gave you the credit," complains her colleague. I actually like Amir from the finance department now. Sorry," says another actor. while crossing the stage in a very funny walk. The audience is cracking up. The women in the audience who watched the performance are excited the topic of sexism in the workplace was the focus of the play. Usually we talk about equity and we talk about women being understood and we talk about a lot of such things but men tend to ignore it. Uh 
in meetings or in large rooms. However, when you say it in segments which are really fun and where you bring the comedy in, I think the message is uh, conveyed much more easily. But it's not just the women who enjoyed the performance. Amazing to see such talented women in the world of comedy. I had a great time. I couldn't stop laughing. Still thinking about the jokes are, I think, very relevant, very contemporary. Uh, I think bringing a combination of, I think, the stereotypes that exist in our culture. Well, we had a great time. Up until now, not everything can be said openly in Pakistan. But Amtul and the Khawatuns are fighting to change that, both for themselves and for other women, says Amtul. There's so many things that can be done here. There's so many things that are missing that I feel the youth, the women, we can fill that gap, right? So I think it's a country of opportunities and I want to own it. It's good, it's bad, it's ugly, it's pretty. I own Pakistan the way it is and I want to change it bit by bit. I love the good parts and the bad parts. I'm trying to change. Ankaraspa with that report by Vanessa Yurka. And that's all we have for you on this week's show. To listen back to this and past episodes of World in Progress, you can go to our website at dw.com. We're also available on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. In the meantime, if you have any feedback or questions, just send us an email at worldinprogress@dw.com. This week's show was produced by Vipka Tektmaya and me, Kathleen Schuster. Our sound engineer was Gad Georgi. Be sure to tune in again next week. World in Progress is produced by DW in Bonn, Germany.